Everybody wants to be a winner. You want to be triumphant. I want to be victorious. All of us do. Everybody wants to be a winner. And some of the cultural prophets of our day can tell you how. Michael Hyatt, business guru, can tell you how to win at work and succeed at life. It's a pretty bold claim. Dale Carnegie can tell you how to win friends and influence people. And Joel Osteen can tell you how to break out, remove barriers, and live an extraordinary life. And the list goes on because everybody wants to be a winner. If you are competitive at all, you want to be a winner. If you're not competitive at all, you still want to be a winner. We have a name for people who aren't. They're called losers. And nobody wants to be a loser. Some people were calling the Apostle Paul a loser. He had suffered and suffered and suffered. He was under attack around every corner. He had lost the popularity contest. If social media had existed, he would have been the constant source of gifs and memes. In the court of public opinion, he was convicted and was being discarded. But what if he knew something about the victorious life that the court of public opinion didn't account for? What if in our pursuit of success in this life, in the victory that we attempt to have in all the different areas of our existence, what if we too miss something really important? What if to win in life and to win in your spiritual life, you actually need to lose first? That is what Paul seems to indicate in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. So I want to ask you to turn in your Bible with me or follow on the screen behind me. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12 through 17. 2 Corinthians 2, starting at verse 12, this is what it says. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity and commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak Christ. 
Paul begins a short section by expressing his concern and a brief explanation of why he has been on the move from one place to another. 2 Corinthians is filled with these little biographical or historical accounts to really help us to understand the nature of biblical history and, and the reason why some things are happening. And we see that Paul has seen the doors open, spiritually speaking, in Troas, and the gospel was expanding there. But something wasn't right. Titus, Paul's companion, was nowhere to be found, and in his pastoral burden and anxiety and even worry, he decided to move on from that place And what we see next is an astonishing picture of the nature of the Christian life as it relates to winning and losing, as it relates to victory and defeat. And we see that, and the point that Paul is primarily trying to make to us is painted in a word picture. A picture of a triumphal entry. Look at verse 14 with me. He says, Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. A triumphal procession in the Roman world was something that would be rich with imagery and laden with emotion. Long before the Roman Empire even existed, triumphal entry was practiced. Try to picture it with me. Try to enter in as I describe what it might be like to witness one of these processions. What Paul is referring to is an elaborate victory parade in which the conquering king would receive fanfare and glory as he rode through the streets with a horse-drawn chariot. His soldiers were with him. The streets were lined as people watched. Pagan priests burn incense. Songs of honor are sung to the king. Animals adorned in jewelry were marched through the street on their way to sacrifice. Music sounded throughout the whole city. The parade was not only included by those who were the victors, but also by those who were conquered and the spoils of war. Carts of weapons were marched in the parade and a multitude of captives, all dressed in their native costumes. And those conquered generals and captives and their king and his family were marched for everyone to see as they moved publicly toward their death. David Garland illustrates one of these triumphal processions from the historian Plutarch, and he describes the procession of a man named Amelius, a successful general, and this procession lasted for three full days through the city. People erected scaffolding on the sides of buildings so they could witness the parade clothed in white garments. Every temple in the city was open and filled with garlands and incense and numerous servitors and lictors restrained the crowds to keep the streets open and clear. On the third day, Plutarch writes that as soon as it was morning, trumpeters led the way, sounding out no marching or processional strain, but rather such as the Romans would use to rouse themselves to battle. 
And after, the, after these, there was led along 120 stall-fed oxen with gilded horns, bedecked with fillets and garlands. And those who led these victims to sacrifice were young men wearing aprons with handsome borders and boys who attended them carrying gold and silver vessels of libation. Then came the arms and the diadem of the captured king, Perseus, in a chariot followed by his children who were led as slaves. And with them, a throng of foster parents, teachers, and tutors, all in tears, stretching out their own hands to the spectators and teaching these royal children to beg and to supplicate. Behind the children and their train of attendants walked Perseus himself, clad in a dark robe and wearing the high boots of his country. But the magnitude of his evils made him resemble one who was utterly dumbfounded and bewildered. He, too, was followed by a company of friends and intimates whose faces were heavy with grief. The victorious general Amelius came, mounted on a chariot of magnificent adornment, wearing marks of power. He wore a purple robe interwoven with gold and held in his right hand a spray of laurel. He was followed by his army singing hymns in praise of the achievements of Amelius. And so you begin to feel the emotion as you place yourself there. The power and the emotion of victory and the agony and grief of defeat. For a Roman Caesar, there was perhaps no greater honor than to lead a triumphal procession. And for a conquered ruler, no greater shame. And so when Paul says... Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. The question becomes, how does he lead us and what role do we play in that kind of procession? And at first blush, you might think that you would be one of the soldiers of Jesus the conquering king who shares in his glory as the victorious one as you go throughout the days and hours and months and years of your life that Jesus leads you in the triumph of victory again and again and again. And that would go along very clearly with the message of our time that self-actualization for you comes through being recognized and through being celebrated and through your victorious living. That's the mantra of our day because everybody wants to be a winner. I do. So do you. But that is the exact opposite of what Paul has in mind here. Perhaps shockingly to us, Paul sees himself not as one of the victorious soldiers of Christ, but rather as one of the captives who has been conquered 
by Christ. And like all of the captives of this triumphal procession, he too is being led through suffering into his own death. In Colossians 2.15, we see this kind of language of Jesus being a conqueror in another way. Colossians chapter 2 is talking about conquering the spiritual realm, and it says this, but the concept is very similar. He, being Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And so here is the reality that he's trying to paint with this picture. Paul was the enemy of God and he was conquered when he was met by Jesus on the road to Damascus, brought to his knees, converted in faith for the forgiveness of his sins. Now, instead of being an enemy of God, he is a slave to Christ Jesus, a phrase that Paul often uses about himself and all of those who would follow Jesus. This Jesus who was leading him through his days toward his own death, so that in this procession, and even in his death at some day, Paul would display the glory of God, the power of God, the, ma the majesty of this one who conquered him. Now that's an important reminder for me <laughs> and for you because I'd imagine most of, most of us don't immediately think of our lives in such a way. We would much rather focus on what we conquer <laughs> Not that we have been conquered. What we win, not the one who has won us. We would much rather focus on where we achieve victory in this world. Not that God has achieved victory and that victory is actually over you and over me. But for Paul, the defining identity of who he is, the defining identity for who you are as a follower in the Lord Jesus is not that you are a winner. It's not that you achieve victory in this life, but that Jesus achieved victory, even victory over you, who were his enemy that he called out of darkness into light. Victory over you who were opposed to him, but now he calls you his friend. If you were to try to encapsulate what Paul is saying, you might say it like this. Jesus' victory over you results in victory for you. Jesus' victory over you results in victory for you. And there is a result of this victory of Jesus in your life. Paul says that that result is a fragrance. It's an aroma. It's an aroma of life and an aroma of death. Look at chapter 2 again. Verse 14, he says that Jesus always leads us in this triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To another, from life to life. The fragrance of the procession 
would linger long for hours or even days after the parade was over. The smells of the spoils without a doubt, but even more intensely, the smell of the incense that was burned as an act of worship to foreign gods. And Paul says that his ministry, the ministry of the gospel, has that sort of lingering smell and effect. And it's true. Everywhere the apostle went, he would stay for some time, he would teach, he would pray, he would lead, he'd plant churches, he would then go on to the next place. He would follow up with a letter. If he was able, he would come back and visit again. The gospel of the salvation of sinners through faith in the Lord Jesus was powerful and it was expressed through this person and through his word and through his work. And it's expressed through your person and word and work as well. Christian ministry and planting churches and evangelizing the lost and preaching sermons were not just a series of disconnected events in the ancient world or even today. It's a movement. (laughs) But it's not even just a movement. Because as the gospel takes root in the lives of men and women and boys and girls, the kingdom of God expands. And this is not just a movement. It actually constitutes an entirely new reality. And in this reality, it changed the aroma of the air after the parade was over. The smell of God and his grace was ever present. Smells and odors can be rather strong, can't they? Aromas can be wonderfully pleasant or terribly offensive. You can walk into your parents' home, perhaps the home you grew up in, and it's amazing that it still smells the same as it did all those years ago. Whether it's the same cleaning products or the smell of familiar cooking, delightful familiarity is found in that aroma. When Amy and I lived in Cape Cod, Massachusetts, whenever we had to cross over the bridge and go off the Cape, I had a ritual upon our return. As we would travel down Route 3 toward the Sagamore Bridge, we would hit the bridge, I would open all the windows in the car and let the salt air fill the cabin of our vehicle. Why? Because the smell of the ocean meant we were home. (laughs) A delightful smell. But odors can be rather invasive as well. And sometimes we can become nose blind to how bad something might smell. I wonder how many of you can remember the last time you were in someone's house that smelled like their dog. You can, can't you? You can remember that. The owners don't even realize it. But you do. And some of you may have had a little illness lately that caused you to lose your sense of smell altogether. And that's an incredibly strange sensation, isn't it? When you can't smell anything. When I was trying to figure out if I still had my sense of smell, if they're battling with said illness, I opened up a big old container of white vinegar and I stuck my nose down in there and took a big old... Nothing. 
I didn't even feel the burning sensation that you're supposed to feel in your sinuses when you do something as stupid as that. (laughs) Nothing at all. And in that moment, you're thankful that this loss of smell is hopefully short-lived and that God made us in such a way that allows aromas of life to penetrate our daily reality. And so, Paul says that the life of a follower of Jesus creates an aroma. Something that leaves an impression. Something that might be intrusive or possibly delightful. And this aroma is multidirectional. Verse 15 says it's an aroma to God. God delights in his prize. He delights in the ones that he has overcome. God delights in the one that he has conquered by his grace. It's not your strength that creates a pleasant aroma to God. It's not what you have done for him in good deeds that ultimately becomes the aroma, the incense of worship to him. It's your weakness and your frailty overcome by his grace and mercy that becomes this incense of worship to God. And what this means, just very practically, by way of application, is that every single time you surrender to him, every time you surrender to the conqueror, every time you rely on him for your needs, every time you seek his forgiveness because you've sinned again, the aroma of grace emanates back to the one who gave it. And God is pleased as he is given glory and as you are given grace. And the victory of Jesus is displayed in your very life again. You are an aroma to God in your weakness because Christ is strong in you. The aroma of the victory also has a horizontal element to it. Verses 15 and 16 says that, that Christians are an aroma to those who are being saved or those who are perishing from death to death or life to life. And this is why true and genuine Christian community can be so rich among fellow believers. At the risk of mixing metaphors, Jesus is like a great polarizer in some ways, as if all humanity were iron filings that were laid out on a sheet of paper and Jesus is the magnet. Each filing lines up with the North Pole or the South Pole and every person is either attracted or repelled by the Lord Jesus because he's the magnet. The power and influence cannot be ignored. And for those who are attracted to the Lord, that attraction to the Lord and that unity together is incredibly strong. Last Sunday, we baptized eight people here at Old North Church. Eight people who were conquered by Christ. Eight people who said, the old self is dead. I was defeated by Jesus. And the new self is alive through faith and new life in him. Eight people who had an aroma of grace. And after every single one of them told their story about how God saved them, all of you in this place erupted in applause and in cheering and in genuine celebration and affection. Why? 
That is the aroma from life to life. Conversely, for the one who is perishing, the one who has no love for Jesus, the one who refuses to be conquered by him, at least right now, this aroma of life becomes putrid to them. The phrase is often said about all of you Christians who are trying to live righteously before God, you just think you're holier than thou. And the idea of judgment and of hell becomes something that people are repulsed by, hopefully not because you're judgmental, at least I hope not, but rather because Jesus himself repels those who refuse his lordship and his conquering. But he will conquer them on some day, and the consequence will be drastically different. So Paul uses this image of marching to his death in the middle of a parade as describing his sufferings that he's endured. The suffering that he has been scorned for even among the Corinthians. And he is saying that for those who are being saved, this aroma of being conquered and even the suffering and the scorn that comes is welcomed in this triumphal parade. But for those who reject the king and his power and his authority, they view Paul's suffering as foolishness and weakness and they reject the suffering and the death of the Lord Jesus himself. And that's why 1 Corinthians 1.8 says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who believe, those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Jesus' victory over you results in victory for you. And so Paul, Paul finishes this short section in defense of the Lord and defense of gospel work. He says, who's sufficient for such things? We are not like so many peddlers of God's word. But as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Are you sufficient to communicate such things, such eternal realities, such great victory and horrible defeat, life, death, eternity, consequence? Could you possibly communicate such things? Are you sufficient to do it? Some people try to peddle these things for their own benefits. They, a peddler is someone who is selling you a bill of goods. They're representing one thing, but they're actually giving you something different. And there's no lack of peddlers today. People who say, I declare victory over your life. I declare success for you this week. I call on the promise of God that you would be rich. Just send me $25 and you'll get that declaration in writing. They're peddlers. Only the conqueror, Jesus, and the ones who have been conquered, only then and there is sufficiency to communicate such profound things. Jesus' victory over you results in victory for you. And so what do you take about, what do you take from such an explanation and such a powerful image of the Christian life? Many things, but here's just four, very briefly. 
Those who follow Christ recognize that he is the Lord and the conquering king. They recognize that they have been conquered by him and the aroma is sweet. (laughs) Secondly, those who follow Christ understand that the aroma of their life comes not from what they do, but from what he has done. Only after being conquered by Jesus can you experience the grace and be a vessel of God's glory. When the gospel of forgiveness is fully applied to you, then and only then will you experience the spiritual victory in this life that you long for, and your life will then become the aroma that is pleasing to God. Some of you are going to stop and say, well, wait a minute right there, pastor. I'm a type A personality. I want to win in life. Are you saying that I shouldn't try hard at the things that I'm supposed to do? Are you saying I shouldn't want to be good at my job or be a good father or husband or wife or mother? Are you saying that I shouldn't try to excel at the things that are important to me? And the answer to that is, of course not. Of course I'm not saying that. Of course the Bible isn't saying that. But what is very clear in the scripture is that those types of victories will not get you to the ultimate victory that you can have in the Lord Jesus himself. Only after you are conquered will your good deeds become pleasing to God. (laughs) Only after you have surrendered will your life be the aroma of worship that you desire. Only after Jesus has been victorious in you will you experience the type of victory that you want. Weakness is the way to greater strength. Dependence is the way to true freedom. Being conquered is the way to victory. The third implication is that those who follow Christ are willing to suffer in his name Because they see, because you see, that the end result and the prize that you will gain is greater than all of the victories that you could possibly have in this world. That's what Paul is displaying in his life. We all want to win at work and at home. We all want to be victorious in what we do. But if you ever stop to think about the fact of what if I'm victorious in all of the things that I'm pursuing in this life, but I'm rejected by God at the end? then all of those victories, all of that winning, it's completely meaningless. That's not the type of victory you want. But if you're willing to follow Jesus no matter what the cost, then even if you suffer, even if following Christ means you don't get to be a winner in the culture, even if following Christ means you might not get the promotion that you're seeking, then in the long term, his victory over you will result in a victory for you. Why? Weakness is the way to greater strength. Dependence is the way to true freedom. Being conquered is the way to victory. And the fourth implication is very plainly, have you surrendered to Jesus? Surrender is 
the language of victory and defeat. Surrender means that you willingly accept defeat. You acknowledge that you've been conquered. Have you surrendered to Jesus? Not just part of you. Not just in individual circumstances. Not just when you need help. Have you surrendered all of you in trust to all of him? Your ideas of what is right and wrong replaced by his ideas of what is right and wrong. Your affections and desires and your plan for life replaced by his plan for your life. Surrendering to a conquering king. It happens by putting your trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins. And when you do, he shows you grace and mercy and your life becomes a beautiful aroma. And as you walk through your days in the procession, week after week, month after month, year after year, even with difficulty and suffering on the way to your own very death, God is glorified in you because of the saving work to you. Have you surrendered? You can make that decision today. Some of you surrendered to Jesus a long time ago, but you keep taking things back. You can make the decision to surrender those things to him today. You know, the story of Jesus conquering us is the story that every Christian experiences in some way that looks different for all of you. That's what we call your testimony. How does God get a hold of your life? How does he show himself to be Lord and King? How are you brought to your knees in repentance to experience true joy and lasting hope that comes only from him? But even though those stories are all different for all of you, there's all a similar element in them. There's a core of what really happens. I want to close this morning by telling you just a very short account of one such story of God's conquering work to encourage you. Professor Mary Pomplin was from Claremont Graduate School when she met Jesus in a dream. And at the time, she was teaching radical feminism, multiculturalism, and postmodernism. And as a devotee of New Age spirituality, she claims that she was the poster child for spiritual but not religious people. A central figure in my life, she wrote, was the New Age actress Shirley MacLaine, dancing on the beach in free-spirited fashion. I was seeking happiness, self-fulfillment, and freedom from restraint, all the while deluding myself about my own goodness. We were children of the 60s, products of the I'm okay, you're okay culture. Kind of sounds a lot like you be you <laughs> and I'll be me. And yet in certain moments, she said, I could see glimpses of who I really was. I was not growing freer. My heart was growing harder, my emotions darker, and my mind more confused. Then in 1992, she had an unshakable dream in which she saw Jesus at the Last Supper. When I got to Jesus, she wrote, and looked into his eyes, I grasped immediately that every cell in my body was filled with filth. Weeping, I fell at his feet. But when, I reached, but when he reached over and touched my shoulders, I suddenly felt perfect peace. She reached out to a friend who suggested that she needed to read the Bible. 
And then in January of 1993, she was sitting in a small church and she received an invitation to put her faith in Jesus. She prayed, if you are real, please come and get me. And suddenly, I felt the same peace I had known in the dream. Jesus had conquered her. To clean up my soul, she said, God taught me what a good friend of mine calls the bar of soap passage, 1 John 1, 9. But forgiveness wasn't always easy to accept. I had, to under, I had undergone two abortions and over three long years of prayer, I doubted whether God had truly forgiven me. Some counselors and fellow Christians had encouraged me that I needed to forgive myself. But the more I searched the scripture, the more confident I was that forgiveness could only come as God's gift. And like Paul, I had to learn to forget what was behind and strive toward what is ahead. As Andrew Murray once said, God is ready to assume the full responsibility for a life wholly yielded to him. And so the question is, have you yielded to him? Have you surrendered? Has he conquered you? If he has, then you join as the sweet aroma of the, of the procession. The triumphal procession of the Lord Jesus throughout history. Let's pray. Father, I imagine that there are some here today who says, I have not surrendered. I'm resistant to the conquering of the Lord Jesus. And we pray today that in the quietness of their heart and mind, you would indeed go and get them. Father, for many of us, we have surrendered in some capacity long ago, but we continue to take things back. We hold on to desires, affections, dreams, sins, and we cling to them tightly because we think that they provide us the comfort that we need. And today, God, we say, we surrender them to you. God, nobody likes the idea of losing in different elements of life. I know I don't. And yet, God, today we see that when we follow the Lord Jesus, not only are we conquered by him, but there will be elements of this life that would make us appear to be weak or unpopular. And yet we take confidence today that his victory over us means that we will have ultimate victory as well. And so we thank you for that. Help us to glorify our Savior day in and day out on the procession of life, we ask. Amen.